Good evening, brothers and sisters. It's a joy to be worshiping together in God's house this evening, to be singing God's word together, praying his word together, and now hearing his word read and uh, hearing God himself speak to us through the reading and preaching of the Holy Scriptures. Our Old Testament passage is Psalm 133. Psalm 133. Wonderful psalm and the unity of the church and the people of God. Let's hear God's word. Behold how good and how pleasant it is for brethren to dwell together in unity. It is like the precious oil upon the head, running down on the beard, the beard of Aaron, running down on the edge of his garments. It is like the dew of Hermon descending upon the mountains of Zion, for there the Lord commanded the blessing, life forevermore. And our New Testament text, 1 Thessalonians two, seventeen through 20 this will be our sermon text this evening. But we, brethren, having been taken away from you for a short time in presence, not in heart, endeavored more eagerly to see your face with great desire. Therefore, we wanted to come to you, even I, Paul, time and again, but Satan hindered us. For what is our hope or joy or crown of rejoicing. Is it not even you in the presence of our Lord Jesus Christ at his coming? For you are our glory and joy. Amen. Thanks be to God for his word. Let's pray. Our God and Father, we thank you for the Holy Scriptures. For here you reveal to us with crystal clarity who you are, who we are, our state of sin and misery, and the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ, and his righteousness and salvation and everlasting life. Here, Lord, by your word, you reveal these things to us. And not only do you reveal them to us, but you, oh God, by your spirit, have taken this word and have given us faith and life in Jesus Christ. And so we pray that even as you began our spiritual resurrection life with your word, that you would continue to refresh and strengthen and sustain our life in Christ by your word. Lord, we pray that you would speak through these sinful lips of mine and that the words that we meditate on here tonight would be your very own and that we would learn from you. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. This is just a very brief break from the series in Genesis. Uh, in the Lord's providence, the week being what it was, uh, I didn't find the time to get the Genesis sermon ready for tonight. So I pulled out this sermon from First Thessalonians, if you remember. Uh, it was the first series that I worked through after I was called to be pastor here was through First Thessalonians. Uh, but tonight I just want to look at these few verses here together, First Thessalonians 2, 17 through 20. In these verses, Paul, writing to this church, takes great pains to tell this church how much he cares about them. 
He, 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 he wants them to know that He loves them, that He, that he cares for them, that, that He's concerned for them. This is a theme that just runs through the whole letter. You see it popping up all over the place in his letter to the, to the Thessalonians. And, and all of the passages, he speaks in many places of, of his love for this church, his pastoral concern, his, his shepherd's heart for this church and his missing of this church. But here in this, this passage, it, it comes out clearest of all that these people mattered to him and that he misses them and that he loves them. Um, if you know the context, the, the historical context for what had happened in Thessalonica and Paul's relationship there, you could see why it was such a heavy concern on his heart that they know his love for them. Uh, Paul had traveled to Thessalonica uh, the first time, and he'd spent three weeks there. Uh, he'd, he'd spoken the word of the gospel to them, and they, had, they, had, they loved it. They, they treasured it. They took it to heart. They received it, as he says in the letter, as the very word of God, not the word of man. And they, they, they repent and they believe. Um, but then persecution comes. The people around them and the, the society, their, their neighbors, their friends the, uh, of, of these Christians, these new Christians, reject their, their new faith and start persecuting them. They start dragging people off to jail. Um, and, and Paul leaves. And so you can imagine the questions in their minds, perhaps. He didn't really, he didn't really care about us. If, if he really loved us, wouldn't he have stayed and suffered with us? Why did he leave? Um, so Paul wants them to know that nothing could be more untrue, that, that, he, that he loves them. And he wants them to know this because he is representing God to them. That, that he's been speaking of God's love and, and he wants them to know that he really feels God's own love for them. Now, it's, it's, it strikes me that um, if I were writing a letter to a church, I would want to emphasize God's love for them. And that's a good thing to do. And Paul does that over and over. But, but what's interesting here is that he wants them to know how much he himself loves them. It's as though for Paul, God's love for his church should be welling up in Paul's own heart for his church. And that the church should know it. Not, not just that, that it's not just vital for, for Paul that he loves the Thessalonian church. It's so vital for him that they know that he also loves them. That they, that they know God's love and also this, uh, the, this pastor's love, this, this, this evangelist's love. For Paul, it's not enough to just preach about Christ's love. But he needs to demonstrate it. The, 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 the message he speaks, a message of God's love, needs to come in the shape, right? The, the manner of this man who is, who is full of love for them also. And loved ones, the point for us to draw away from this is that this same love that we see in Paul for this church is what should characterize our relationships with one another in our church. That even as Paul speaks of his deep concern and care and love and affection for this church, so should we love one another. And, and so should we make sure that we know it. And that, 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 that we, we know each other, that, that, that we know each other's love for us and that others in the church know our love, our love for them. We'll work through the text with just two headings. The first... Paul's longing, verses 17 through 18. Paul's longing. What strikes us first is the intensity of his language. 
verse 17 when he describes what it felt like for him to be to be separated from the Thessalonians. He says in verse 17 that he was taken away from he says I was taken taken away from you. Another translation says since we were torn away from you. The Greek word being translated there means to be orphaned. It's the word that you could use of a parent who lost a child or or a child who lost a parent in the Greek. And Paul is saying when I was taken away from you. It felt like, it felt like a, a, a father being torn away from his child. This is the kind of love he had for them. He was only there three weeks, but he had this great love and care and concern as a father for a child for them. And, and then when he had to leave them, it was not a, he didn't want to go, but he was torn away from them. He then goes on to tell them, that this separation from them was in person, but not in heart. It's a wonderful, uh, wonderful little phrase there that, that yes, I was separated from you um, physically. I, I was no longer there, but, but my heart was with you. He, he has to travel on. He goes on to the next city, on to Berea. But as he walks on to Berea and preaches in Berea, he's still got Thessalonica on his mind and the brothers and sisters that he came to know and love there. And he's, he's concerned for them. And he describes how badly he wanted to go back. He says at the end of verse 17 that he endeavored more eagerly to see your face with great desire. He, he wanted this. Deeply desired it. Uh, the word here used for great desire is the same word that is often used in the New Testament for lust or, or passion or, or covetousness. This is, a, this is a deep, in your guts kind of desire. And this is what Paul is saying. This is how I wanted to come back to you. I, I longed for you. My, 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 my whole being yearned to come back and to, to be with you face to face. He didn't want to just be uh, you know, thinking of them, writing letters to them, but, but there with them, face to face with them. Loved ones, we should see the high premium that the Holy Spirit writing through Paul places on the fellowship of the saints. The, the, the way Paul is speaking here shouldn't be foreign to us. How he speaks of his intense desire, missing these loved, beloved people when he's away from them. That that should be familiar to us, resonate with us. Yes, that's the way I love the church, those people, my brothers and sisters in in the church. Um, And to be face to face with them. Um, There's no substitute for this face to face fellowship in Christ's body, it's indispensable. It's so indispensable that that Satan himself fights against it. Verse 17 tells us that when Paul tried to visit the Thessalonican church, Satan prevented him. Satan wanted Paul separated from the Thessalonians. He he wanted them not to be... he, He didn't want Paul able to encourage them. He didn't want them able to encourage Paul. We're not told how Satan worked this out whether it was through some kind of sickness or, or persecution or whatever it might have been. The text doesn't tell us, but, but what we should notice is just that loving each other in the church is spiritual warfare. That Satan is dead set against our fellowship together. And so that, that, that when, when that temptation comes to neglect a brother or sister 
or the gathering of God's people together, or, or that the face-to-face fellowship, to, to ignore that, to neglect it. That, that, that's a real temptation from Satan himself. He doesn't want you to be encouraged or to encourage others in the body of Christ because it is indispensable to us to be growing together as a church. This is God's intention for us. So let us, let us learn from this. Let us prize fellowship with God's people. We don't all need to be extroverts. Uh, we don't all need to be, uh, to be uh, to really talkative and, and just wanting to visit with everybody, but to, to treasure real relationships with God's people where we are encouraging them, they're encouraging us, and we're enjoying the love of Christ together. Now, that takes practice. It takes work, but... The grace of God is, is sufficient for it, and we should strive after it. That's, that's the first thing we see in the text. Paul's longing, his deep longing for this church, and, and that's what we should be praying that we would have also for each other. The second thing we see is Paul's glory. Paul's glory. At this point, I think we see how clearly Paul loves this church, but what he says next is, is really stunning. Verses 19 through 20, he says this, What is our hope? What is our joy? Our crown of rejoicing. Pause. How do you expect him to answer? If you're reading along in Paul, you don't know what comes next. He says, what is our hope, our joy, our crown of rejoicing? What are you going to think he's going to say? The Lord Jesus Christ. The Gospel. True. But what does he say here? Read on. Is it not even you? And the presence of our Lord Jesus Christ that is coming for you are our glory and joy. So with Thessalonians, he says, you're, you're my hope. That, that on the day of judgment, when Paul stands before Christ, they're his hope. That, 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 that they'll be found faithful on that day. That, that they'll be that they'll be uh, they'll be they'll be found uh, righteous before Christ because of Paul's ministry among them on that day. Then he says, second, um, that there is joy at the coming of Christ. That when when Christ returns, Paul is going to see the Thessalonians there, receiving the kingdom uh, with him. He's going to say, "There are those whom I labored for, those whom I loved, those whom I those those whom I preached the gospel to. There they are." And they're, they're, they're here with me at the day of, of judgment. And he says, third, that there will be his crown of rejoicing or, or boasting before Jesus on the day of judgment. That when he stands before Christ on the day of judgment, he will be able to, to say, Lord, look at the Thessalonians. I preached your gospel to them. And, and look, look how they believed. Look how they persevered. Look how they were faithful to you. We might challenge Paul on this point. Wait a minute. Paul, you also wrote, 2 Corinthians 10, 17, let the one who boasts, boast in the Lord. Uh, you also wrote, 1 Corinthians 1, 29, that no human being should boast in the presence of God. And you wrote, Ephesians 2, 9, we are saved by grace through faith, so that no one should boast. Or Romans 3, 27, what becomes of boasting? It is excluded. Paul, why are you boasting now? If you've said all these other places, no boasting. Um, he's boasting not in what he has done. He's not saying, look how great I did with the Thessalonian Christians. But he's saying, Lord, look at what your gospel did through me. But your gospel did through me to the 
Thessalonians. I preach the gospel to them and look at the result. A faithful church, a fruitful church, a a, a vibrant, growing, God-glorifying church. He's not boasting. Paul's not boasting in what he's done. He's boasting in what God has done. Through him, now there's a there's a world of difference between those those two things. He's he's rejoicing and boasting in what God has done through the preached word of uh, of God. One of the commentaries, one of the writers says this. He says, "How can Paul's glorying in his converts' faith be harmonized with this resolve not to boast except in the cross of Christ? His glorying in his converts." as he saw the grace of God manifested in them, was but a phase of his glorying in the cross. They were the fruit of the preaching of the cross. That's what he's boasting in. What God's gospel has done, what the cross of Christ has done through through him, uh, but, but it's the glory that goes to God. So Paul's rejoicing as he, as he thinks about the Thessalonians. He sees the day of judgment, and he says, on that day, you will be my hope, my joy, and my crown of boasting. But he's not just thinking about that day. He's also thinking about the present. Verse 20, he says, For you are our glory and joy. Right now. Not just then. Not, not just on the day of judgment when you're perfectly righteous. But now, Thessalonians, you are my glory and joy. Uh, The church here, this church, is a church that he loves. It's a church he loves to tell other people about. As he travels around, he he tells others about how, uh, how the Thessalonians responded to the gospel. This is the kind of church that when he thinks about them, he doesn't sigh, he doesn't feel a heaviness settling on him from the burdens of, 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 of their, of their sin and their, their problems. When he thinks about this church, he smiles. The Thessalonians. Oh, the way God's word ran through that community like fire and produced real fruit of the fruit of the spirit. What's the point here for us? Again, this is how we should think about God's church, and this is how we should think very specifically about about our church as well. Um, this this is how this is how. I should feel as your pastor. This is how the elders should feel as as under-shepherds of Christ here. And this is how we should all feel with regards to one another, that that you are my glory and my joy. We should be able to say that regarding our brothers and sisters here, those in the pew next to you, those who worship with you here Sunday by Sunday, these saints, these people in this church are my glory and my joy joy. That's not always easy. Um, it could be hard to love the church. Uh, we get to know each other and we get to know each other's quirks and the things that might irritate us or rub us the wrong way or, or, or sins and failures, promises made that weren't followed through, um, something you hoped so-and-so would remember and they forgot. Um, uh, we can offend each other, sin against each other, and there is so much about us that does not look like glory and joy. Um, we can be severely hurt by the church. Some of you, some of you have been severely hurt by, by the church or churches in the past, hurt by leadership in the church, hurt by a pastor or elders, disappointed in the church. So how, how can we say the church is our glory 
and our joy. What is it that makes Paul able to say it? It's not just that this is a wonderful church in Thessalonica. It is a wonderful church. He's been telling them about the fruit of their faith that he's seen, and so it's a a thriving church, and he's rejoicing in that. But the Thessalonian church is is not the only church Paul says this to. He says it to other churches. He says it to some churches which which aren't quite as as vibrant as well. Um, He tells the Corinthians a church that struggled mightily with with so many things, with so many issues and sins. He says in 2 Corinthians 1, verse 14, he says, On the day of our Lord Jesus, you will boast of us as we will boast of you. He says it also to the church in Philippi. My beloved and longed-for brothers, my joy and crown, stand fast in the Lord, beloved. So Paul is not boasting in these people, period. He's boasting in these people in Christ. Right? He, he looks at them and he sees Christ in them. He sees the Holy Spirit in them. He sees the gospel covering them. And so even though they might sin, fail, and fall, he sees, they're, they're trusting in the Lord Jesus Christ. They're united with Christ. And so as Paul looks at them, he says, now, now, this is a work in progress. It's a building with the scaffolding all around it, and you can barely see what it's going to be. It doesn't look like much. But I know that Christ is in them, working in them, and he will, he will finish this, and it will, be, it will be glorious. And so that's what he's, that's what he's rejoicing in. And brothers and sisters, let's, let's learn from that. As, as we look around and as we live together as Christ's church here, and we see the sin, the failures, the, 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 the faults in each other, the shortcomings, um, we're seeing the messy construction site and the scaffolding, but Christ is at work. And so as we look at one another, we need to remember Christ, Christ is working. They're in Christ. Christ is in, is in them, and, and he's going to complete this. Therefore, they are my glory and my joy. C.S. Lewis reflects on this idea in one of his writings. He says, it's a serious thing to live in a society of possible gods and goddesses, to remember that the dullest and most uninteresting person you can talk to may one day be a creature which, if you saw it now, you would be strongly tempted to worship. Lewis goes on, he says, If someone is your Christian neighbor, he is holy, for in him also Christ, glory himself, is hidden. This is, this is, how, Paul, this is how Paul also has seen the church, how Lewis learned to see the church, and how we need to learn to see our brothers and sisters in Christ. We look at each other as in Christ, forgiven, justified, adopted, sanctified, called by Christ, uh, the one for whom Christ died. So often as the elders gather for prayer before the service, we're praying together, we're praying for the worship, we're praying for God to be glorified, and and we pray for the, the sheep for whom Christ died. You, gathered here, and uh, um, we want to see God be at work among the church here as those for whom Christ died. And that, that's how we need to learn to look at one another and treat one another. But Paul doesn't just do this. He doesn't just look at the Thessalonican believers and say, they're in Christ, and Christ is in them, therefore I love them. That's, that's part of why he loves them. He also says, Christ is in me. 
and therefore I love them. Isn't that so? If Christ's Spirit is in you, the Spirit of the one who died for that other Christian, how can you not love that other Christian? If you've been, if you've been filled with the Spirit of Christ, so it's not just, oh, I see Christ at work on you, therefore I love you, but Christ is, Christ is in me. He's at work in me. So Paul is filled up with, with Christ and the, and the love of Christ. Uh, the, the love that Paul is, is demonstrating for the church here is not just like Christ's love, right? I'm going to follow his example. I'll love you too. And in a poor example of how Christ loved, a, a copy. But he's saying, my, my love for you is Christ's love. That as, as Christ's love fills Paul up, it overflows onto others so that the love that fills up a church is not human love. It's Christ's love. It's the Spirit's love overflowing from each other uh, as Christ fills us up onto each other. And this is where our confidence rests in the end. Not, not that we can do this. Not that we can learn in our own strength to, to love sinners in Christ's church, but that Christ who loved us and gave Himself for us and filled us with His Spirit will enable us more and more to love one another. Let's pray. Lord, we thank You for the love that You have shown us in Christ our Savior. We thank You for the love that You have given us, the love that You've poured out into our hearts through the Spirit. And we pray that You would, Lord, help us to share that love with one another, that You might bind us closer together as a church, that we would say, these, my brothers and sisters, are my glory and my joy. Lord, teach us these things. Work these things in us by Your grace, for Your glory. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.